This meeting is being live streamed. Folks, we're often racing. It's Tobias Carlisle. This is Value After Hours, joined as always by my co-host, Jake Taylor. And our special guest today is Zach Abraham. He's the founder, chief investment officer, CEO, the man at <laughs> Bulwark Capital Management. How are you, Zach? Doing good. Yeah. The, the, the guy that wears the hat. Well, it depends on how the performance goes, right? Yeah. <laughs> Chief investment officer when we're winning. Yeah. When we're not, it's the analyst's fault. <laughs> Welcome, Zach. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Good to be here. Hey, we finally got a markets in turmoil. We're probably we're, we're like down a percent or something. Yeah, like that. <laughs> there's been so little volatility. Oh, my gosh, man. No kidding. Panic. What do you think, Zach? Where are we? <laughs> well... Uh, seeing well, I mean, just so people know, full. I was thinking about the last time we did this, and I was on with you. Um, the last time I was on with you, Toby, was when I was still working out of my home office. So, uh, so a lot's changed. If people remember, you know, I'm a value guy at heart, so that probably uh, uncovers me for being a little bit bearish at the moment. Um, <laughs> I don't want to be hyperbolic at all, but I think in a lot of ways. Um, a, a personally, I started running a portfolio in 07. I've, I've never seen a market that seems more detached from fundamentals than current. And, and when I say that, I don't mean that everything's insanely priced. I just don't see any rhyme or reason to how things are priced, right? Mm -hmm. It just seems like things are just floating. Uh, <laughs> like I keep, we keep joking around at the office. It's like stocks have become Pokemon cards, right? Where, you know, somebody thinks it's worth this much this day, discount uh, rates don't matter anymore. Um, you and I were talking about off air. If you would have told me that the Fed funds rate was going to go to five and a half and earnings were going to be down, margins were going to be down pretty much the S&P uh, you know, throughout the entire, entire S&P. I think on an inflation adjusted basis, revenues are down year over year. And in that backdrop, you're looking at a market that's up 10% plus. I, yeah, I, I just, <laughs> falling profits and higher rates don't typically incite me to want to jump in there and buy. Um, so I, I think that I one of the things, I was looking back at a letter we wrote to our clients in 2021, at the end of 2021. And we said that, look, we I, th I think we're at the peak of this cycle. But um, it's going to be a knife fight just because it's been the longest, biggest bull market of all time. And you've had 0% rates pretty much the entire time. And we said, look, we think it's going to take a lot longer to get to normal, quote unquote. Um, and we'd expect to see massive bear market rallies. So, so far, right, that's the way it's playing out. And in that light, um, I guess this year shouldn't surprise me, right? Everything has been bigger and longer and crazier. And this appears to be too, but I don't think it's going to change the ultimate um, resting place. I think we're going lower. I don't think we're on the edge of a morass. I don't think we're looking at some big 0809 <laughs> black hole. And you know what's funny, guys? And I'd love to hear your thoughts. I feel like I've already been rambling, but I feel like you're really setting up for kind of a mini 70s type period where you're just kind of got to grind sideways for a long time while you digest the current valuations, which seem very stretched. Um, I think peak margins are probably in the rearview mirror. Um, you know, I just, I kind of, I, I, I'm not a perma bear. I don't think we're about ready to fall off the face of the earth. I, I also don't think that this is the environment of a new bull market breakout either. 
Um, I kind of think both bulls and bears are going to get smacked around. And um, I kind of think sideways chop for a while uh, seems like the most logical position at this point, but we'll see. It's very interesting to see the bond market versus the stock market and just how differently they're interpreting the current situation. I mean, I don't remember a time where it's been this far out of sync. No. Yeah. There's clearly some, there's clearly some disconnect bonds. are. I I saw John Hussman who's, you know, pretty bearish guy. Most of the time he said that bonds today, he put them into like a zone of like reasonableness. Like they weren't, he didn't oh, think yeah. they were they were particularly out of whack. So you've got bonds that have persuaded one of the more bearish guys around. Got well, this, I mean, he's constructive on bonds. I don't know if he was constructive. He was just like less sort of. I just he, I just like that term. It doesn't. I don't, don't want to put me, the wrong words. <laughs> you you know what amazes me about, it? and this is not a slam at all. Like I I really I he, the, the guy's smarter than I am, uh, which probably isn't saying a whole lot. Uh, but, and I don't mean it. I just want his clientele base, right? Like, no, no. I, and, and I mean this, like that guy has man managed to maintain really significant AUM. And for a long time, that performance has looked pretty meager to, to give him credit. He did have very good returns in the nineties. He was, he was very bullish in the nineties. He's had a pretty good run and he's been pretty clear about his strategy. I mean, people are there because they, he, they agree, they agree with his thesis. Yeah, yeah. And I, I have a lot of sympathy for his thesis too. I, I, I don't want to sound critical because I, I, I read his stuff. I enjoy his stuff. I don't think he's wrong. I just think that it takes a very long period of time for it to play out. Same. I, I, I feel the same way. And I think that something that I've had to absorb over the last fifteen year cycle, and it's probably what's got him, is, um. You know, you can look at what central banks and what governments have done in a lot of different lights. Obviously, again, there's a ton of different takes out there. But I think one of the easier ways to really understand it is so many macro stories and theses haven't played out because central banks are muting that, right? That That's what their intervention is doing, is muting macro plays and macro flows and macro reactions. And... uh if you look at the performance of a lot of macro guys over the last 15 years under that lens kind of explains it. You know, there were, there were a lot of the macro events that I think got, I mean, think about when, when um, what's his name. I'm, I'm spacing that, you know, um, whatever it takes. Right. Uh, Draghi. Yeah. Draghi. Right. Um, you Good know, if it, if it wasn't for that sentence, I think the macro guys would have made a killing over those, the next three to six months there. So I, I think that Hussman, I, I kind of see Hussman's argument is it has to be eventually right. It's just the timing of it, you know, obviously. And there's been lots Off. of little scares of, you know, SBV, uh, gilts, uh, and that's just even in the last, you know, 12 months or whatever. Uh, yeah. But, but how quickly we just move on from that and just like put that, all that stuff, like, ah, that was, those are old problems. We're, we're past that. <laughs> I don't, you're you're literally I, I again I don't want to be hyperbolic but I think it's probably fair to say you were a week or two away from a complete national bank run on the regionals you know I mean m- maybe more maybe it was a month right I mean because the problem with those right is they feed on each other it just it continues yeah. to get worse and worse confidence issue yeah Which, to give the Fed credit like that's what they're supposed to do they're supposed to stop those those bank runs so they I don't know 
you know, I, I don't know if that's traditionally the way that's supposed to be. It's supposed to be people lining up at the door and they just say, yeah, you're going to get, you're going to get your money. Just, just Sit don't, tight. just yeah. relax. Yeah. There's, there's, there's no chance that the bank goes under for liquidity reasons. I don't know if they're supposed to pull the handle, you know, flood the market with capital just because somebody's having some struggles, but that seems to be what they've done. They've been bailing out hedge funds and so on. Yeah. I, I, the, I, it's just because if you think about it too, it's really crazy to watch it morph, you know, cause I'm, I'm assuming we're all kind of in that same age range. When, when did you start in the business, Jake? Uh, call it 2007 ish. Okay. So yeah, right around the same time I did. Um, right at the top of value. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. We're singing the same story. Yeah. Uh, but it's just, it's fascinating to watch. I mean, we all remember how crazy it was watching them pass tarp right in 08. Yeah. If you think about it, that tiny numbers, Oh yeah. That SVB vehicle was 40% of tarp. You know what I mean? And it didn't even make the news, (laughs) you know, it's just wild the way that you watch these things unfold. And I just think that's why I kind of think that, um, you know, this lower for longer kind of thing is coming because I, I feel like you couldn't have set up market or the market or market participants worse because you have literally told them if we take a 23% GDP shock in a single quarter, don't worry, right? We got you, right? And so I just think you have that Pavlovian response. You guys know as well as I do, the only way you've been wrong over the last 15 years if you didn't buy the dip in tech, right? Like that's for 15 years. It's like a fifth of most people's lives, right? So um, I just think that that's going to be, and that's why we were kind of prepping clients back in 2021, just saying, look, I think this is the right time to make a pivot toward fundamentals and really be disciplined about it, but don't expect it to look good every quarter because you're going to see these reflexive and Pavlovian rips. And that's, that's kind of how it's played out. Um, I still can't believe the NASDAQ is up as much as it is this year, but, uh, you know, it's at the same time, I guess I'd say it wasn't surprising you know, given the backdrop. It's been extraordinary to watch rates rise the way that they have. And to, as you say, to wind it forward 12 months and see the market where it is, I certainly didn't expect that to happen. But then if you look at every other crash, they do seem to have this very long, you know, the 2000, 2002, 2007, 2009, like they are years long. Um, events and they all have this same sort of, they have an early sort of sell-off that spooks everybody. And then it rallies back to almost the all-time high. It never quite gets there. And then it's that back half where all of the action seems to happen. And I think we saw that rally back to almost the all-time high whenever that was recently, but it also didn't quite get there. And now we're into that part of the, the cycle where the Fed has been raising for now, I think, I think they started in May last year. Do you guys know exactly when that started? It's been a while anyway. So we, we the yield curve inverted in October, late October last year. Here we are. It's almost October. The yield curve is now halfway back from where, like at its full inversion, it was negative 1.89. We're at like negative 0.96, I think yesterday, or 0.93 yesterday. So like halfway, say, call it halfway. And it's taken a long time to get there. And so when you see that the actual the actual crash, like the real carnage tends to happen 
after the inversion goes back into normalization. So we're getting pretty close to that event. And maybe that's what now we're seeing a little bit of the jitters, a little bit of the shakes. And I think the Fed keeps it raised until something breaks. I mean, why would they not? They would take, they'd be looking at exactly the same data that you and I are looking at. We're all looking at and saying, well, we've put rates to 5% and market hasn't cracked. Stock market hasn't cracked. It's fine. Real estate market hasn't cracked. It's fine. There's just zero incentive to lower rates at this point. And there's plenty of punishment because inflation's still pretty high. So I guess they wait until something cracks. And the moment that it cracks, they start cutting. But we know there's a long lag and it takes another two years to sort of for that to play through. Yeah, well, a rough roadmap. I, I, I couldn't agree with everything you said. And I think that the lag time is going to take longer this time. Because credit, you know, you're coming out of a period of time where obviously you had historically low rates really across the board, right? And then on top of that, this, you know, I mean, in an environment that's like unlike any that we've ever seen with fiscal stimulus. I mean, I mean if you massive want- Massive fiscal stimulus. Massive oh, yeah. fiscal stimulus. So anybody that wanted to get something financed or refinanced has, you know what I mean? They're, it, it For the most part. And- uh One of the things that I keep going back to, and again, I just, I think one of the biggest issues this market is dealing with is one of perception. Meaning when you look at stimulus, you know, the other thing, people are like, well, wages are up a lot. This is the worst real wage growth over the last two and a half to three years that you've had in history, right? So yeah, they're up, but up compared to what, right? And I feel like people are missing that. Purchasing power is down, even though wages are up. Right. Right. Which, you know, that that matters to the consumer. And the thing that I just cannot wrap my head around, and we've gone round and round and round about this. Again, you say the word recession, everybody's like, well, you're a perma bear. And you get guys, historically, recessions happen every six and a half years. Right. It's not like it's it's not like Independence Day, you know, and a recession settles over the top of the White House and just nukes it. Right. (laughs) Uh, But when you. When you remove 0% rates and stimulus, how do you expect things not to go back more similar to trend prior to COVID, right? Like people, you know, people aren't going to keep purchasing new barbecues every year because COVID happened, right? And they're not going to keep remodeling their, their living room in their backyard. So, I mean, I just think you have all these things lining up where I just, I, you know, and could we be wrong? Sure. I just don't see a way out of a technical recession. I, I just, I just don't see how it squares. I've heard from that the the phrase right now in private equity, real estate, maybe venture too, is survive to 25. And it's like, okay, rates will be lower in by 25. And if we just can just survive to there, don't sell any of your assets, just get through to 25 and you'll be back in the driver's seat. Uh, and I feel like the market kind of, it seems like it might be that attitude a little bit like, okay, just survive to 25. I'm not going to sell anything. I'm just going to ride this. Yeah. I mean, and the eerie thing about it, I know I'm not telling you guys anything that you don't know either, but man, isn't that the credo going into every single economic contraction, right? Soft landing. Soft Soft landing. landing. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to buckle up and ride it out. Soft land. No landing, Toby. Come on. I saw a chart. I saw a chat yesterday, like the the number of articles with soft landing, and it always spikes into the really big recessions. Right before, yeah, the big recessions. Yeah, uh-huh. 
the the other thing that I think is interesting about this, and we talked about this on the last on on our show recently, was um, I, I and this always happens at the peak, but it seems like it's just happening in mass now, where it's sort of like investors are covering their ears and saying. You know, I don't want to hear any bad stories. I, I had a little, it reminds me of a little cousin I had. She was like three years old and she'd get, her parents would be disciplining or she'd cover her ears and go, I don't want to hear any of those words. You know, it kind of reminds me of that with investors right now, because like, let's take real estate, for instance, right? I saw an article the other day, housing volumes have fallen to a 28 year low or something like that. that yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> And we all know price follows volume, right? It's an age-old adage in our industry. And they go, but median home prices are up 4%. And I started dying laughing, looking at that, going, look, if you look historically, and, and the, these rates probably aren't perfectly accurate, but um, <clears throat> about 20% of loans, mortgages issued, are jumbo loans, right? So by definition, you know, about 80% of loans issued are less than that. And that's about correct when you look at the ter- the typical mix of real estate, right? All of your volumes, even throughout the Great Recession, the financial crisis, the disproportion, a good two-thirds of your volumes happen at that lower half of the scale, right? So you just got more people. Okay, well, we know that the lower end has, this time is very unique. It's dried up much more than the higher end, which, which makes sense in this environment. The lower end has to access credit. A lot more people at the higher end don't, right? So you got a lot more cash buyers at that higher end. Well, think about that. Okay, so if if you look at a mix, let's say all housing across the country is down an average of 20%. And I'm not saying it is, but I'm just saying, you know, for sake of argument. And you change that mix of 80-20 houses below 700,000, 20% above 700,000. You change that mix to 50-50. And, and it's somewhere in there now, 50-50, 40-60, somewhere in there. Right. You can easily have a scenario where all houses are down 20%, but the median's up five. Mm. Right. right. It's, yeah, that's it's, interesting. It's, a, it's a fallacy of composition. So when you actually bust into these markets, and we've looked at Austin, I, I've owned property in Phoenix that I've sold in the last two years. Okay. So I know that market well. I know this market up in the Seattle area very well. We're looking at um, <clears throat> Bay Area, California. I, when you start looking across those markets and you look at all the data that's available, 12 to 15 kind of seems about where you've pulled off from the peak. And yet the median price, everybody's like, oh, houses are hanging in there. They're not. It's just a fallacy of composition. It's the way that they're looking at, you know, and people are like, oh, it's a conspiracy. And I go, no, right? It's, what is it? 70% of the time, economies are expanding. And, and the metrics that we build are useful in those periods of times. Right. But you get into a period of time like this that is extraordinarily abnormal. And it makes sense that those typical metrics that we use don't really work. And so I, I think that there's just an exorbitant amount of misconception out there. Um, I mean, you can I, you know, you just go through those those real estate markets and those people arguing that house prices are up four percent year over year, it's just not true. It's just not. And again, it's just these fallacies of composition. So yeah. Let me let me give a quick shout out to all that. We got a pretty diverse group of people dialing in. So we got Lose, Lose, Delaware, Nashville, Tennessee. What's up? Wexford Island, Island in the house. Toronto, Toronto, Prague, Altamont Springs, Florida, Savonlinna, Finland. What's up? Pyongyang, North Korea. Good, good to hear you. I think you might be our first caller from there. No way. Santa Domingo, Dominican Republic. I think it's a joke. Cincinnati, Tallahassee, Glasgow, 
Shetland Islands, what's up? San Diego, Norberg, Sweden, Kensington, London. German for... (laughs) Durham, (laughs) Gulf of Mexico, Bucharest, (laughs) Romania, Rayleigh. From the Empire, there's Julius Caesar in the house, Santa Monica, Bangalore, Guatemala, Milton Keynes. I think I... I can't remember whether I said that correctly or not. Got a few shout outs for you, Zach, in the in the uh, in the comments here. Mm, so right. let's 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 go equities for a little bit because I, I know that this is we I do talk a lot of macro. We do talk a lot of macro, but let's let's go macro equities. Um uh, small caps getting absolutely smoked. There was a Royce article out yesterday. Uh, they said that small to large using EV EBIT, biggest discrepant, biggest sort of spread that they've got. In 28 years of data, the only the only time it was a little bit wider was was March 2020 at the bottom. How do you feel about like the, the thing the thing that they say? So they say small caps, the average PE in small caps is something like 12 and a half at the moment versus a long run average of like 18 and a half. And it's already in an environment where rates have gone up. Their all of their borrowing costs are up. Small caps are really kind of already in their in their bear market. And then the, the, some of the criticisms that I saw in the tweets under that work, yeah, when I go through that list of, you know, whatever it is, 2,000 stocks, I find it hard to find things trading at 12 times earnings. What, what do you think is going on there? What, why is the uh, the macro data saying it's cheap, but when people dig through, there's not much that's sort of interesting. Is it all energy and real estate that the traditional value guys don't want to touch? Yeah, I, th- I think that's part of it. I also think that... Um... <laughs> Again, human psychology, and it's funny because we always want to assume that we're not part of it, and yet um, it's scary, man. I mean, we we've had 15 years of. I was telling some of our younger employees the other day about some of the horror stories I've got over the last 10 to 12 years of holding value picks. You know, uh, I was telling them the story about Packar. We owned Packar for five years. Margins went up. The dividend doubled. And uh, revenues rose 50%. And the only thing that changed was the price to earnings ratio it went from 13 to 8. <laughs> you know, and and so we, you know, at, in terms of a business, was that a good investment? It was a great investment as a business, right? Problem is the equity didn't move. So I think that's a big part of it. I also think that when you start looking through, I'm not sure it is, at, I'm not sure where it's at right now. I haven't really looked at it very specifically, but there was also one point where, I think GameStop was the biggest position in IWM, something like that, Mm, right? Where you've had these crazy moves. So when you start looking, right, the same, that same indexing impact that's happened to the S&P 500, it has certainly had an impact on the, on the small caps too. So when we were going through that small cap index, you know, you're looking through small cap value specifically, and you're looking and going, that's not value. That's not value. That is true. Yeah. I, I think I have noticed that. Yeah, I think that you know it shouldn't be a surprise to any of us, especially because we're all in, you know individual guys looking at different individual equities and things of that nature. But um, it's really hard to find a corner of this market that does not look like it's been significantly impacted by passive, you know. Yeah, um, and just that market cap waiting, right? Just feeding on itself. You you posted that thing just what was yesterday, wasn't it? Which said that the. Um, uh, the the uh, medium weight or the uh, what is it called the even weight S and P was now negative on the year. Yeah, that was yesterday. It's down more today. So S and P equal weight is definitely negative on the year, and that's and I think that if you if you cut out the seven, 
the Magnificent Seven. I think it's I think it's down. Oh, it's yeah. definitely down. It, yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be. And um, yeah, so I so I think, but but what I will say, and this is what I was saying earlier when we first got on, is, and it, this gets overused in terms of value and in terms of opportunity. I think that it's a very, I think there's tons of really target rich stuff out there. I think there's stuff that looks very tempting long-term. Um, it's just that, right. You got stuff that is crazy cheap. It just feels like suicide to buy it. Um, you know, and then you've got stuff that's still insanely expensive. So there, there are, you know, energy is one of those, uh, yes. where look, I know I'm not the first guy to come on and talk about energy, but when you look at a lot of these companies, one of the things that I think people are missing here, guys, is what has happened in the last two and a half years to these companies has been transformational, right? Like a lot of these companies have been choking on debt for 15 or 20 years. You know, a lot of them now, that ain't a problem. If not, they've completely paid it off. I mean, these are the, they may have the same ticker, but a lot of these names are not structurally the same company. You know, they're completely different. Um, I do think it's going to be a wild ride. I mean, I don't think it's going to be easy to hold these things, but um, there is still, in my opinion, generational value to be had in the energy space and even in the commodity space. Um, what do you think about, so Michael Cow has been on the podcast to um, more traditional like equity structure arbitrage, but he's he's sort of moved a little bit more macro these days. And his, his, uh, his Substack and his Twitter account is a little bit more macro. And he talks about... Uh, you know, oil just being weak, typically into a recession. And so if we, if we are, you know, if the recession does play out the way that we're sort of all sort of assuming that it will, then you'd expect to see energy weak into that. And you'd also expect to see energy equities follow suit. And I think that the energy, energy equities haven't followed the oil price so far. Like the, the last few months, they've sort of disconnected a little bit. Is that, is that fair? I might, JT, you, you, you're shaking your head there a little bit. Um, yeah, I would say that feels kind of fair. I feel like, um, the price of oil has kind of come back up. What is it back up above 90? I think so. Yeah. And the equity side has, in my experience, at least not, uh, seem to have participated as much. I was going to say, do you guys feel like it's fair to say right now that the, the crash is here? It's just not evenly distributed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe that's the way this goes, right? Maybe it's, a wave hits this and a wave hits that. The only problem is because the market cap waiting situation has gotten so extreme when tech gets hit. And this has been our thesis really the whole way along, um, which felt sort of dicey because it really cuts against the grain. But, you know, we're really supposed to get our cues from the S&P 500. You know, it's the biggest index. It's the most broadest reaching. We haven't been doing that since the end of 2021. We've been tracking the NASDAQ and it has worked on a technical level. It has behaved much better in terms of understanding, you know, what's coming at you on a technical basis. It's just, it's adhered to the levels much what, better. What do you mean? What do you mean you track it? What, what do you, what do you mean? Well, so when we get into an environment like this, we've got several different risk management techniques, but if we're really worried about market downsides, we really pay more attention when it comes to hedging our positions. We really pay more attention. We're, we're value oriented. I mean, our value portfolio, that's how we pick everything, but we really rely on technicals on the hedging side. 
right? Um, and we were tracking, we were, we made kind of that decision, which felt a little bit crazy at the time to use the NASDAQ as our indicator when to hedge and, and when to manage risk, uh, as opposed to the S&P 500. We made that call at the end of 2021 and it worked much better. There, there were just several times where you had fake breakouts on the S&P. The NASDAQ was bumping up against the top of the range. It got beat back down, uh, where if you'd have been tracking the S&P, it would have told you to pull the, pull the insurance off. Um, What's the reason for that? Just more people are in playing around in the NASDAQ than in the S&P 500. Yeah. I mean, you look at every 401. We have an interesting, um, and you know this, Toby, but you know we, we deal with all retail investors. So we look at a lot of positioning, right? We look at a lot of 401ks coming in. And as you'd expect, right, everybody's loaded up on these queues, right? Uh, this fund queue, it's been great for us. It was it's a great crushing it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you look at these people underlying portfolios and they're 40 to 50% in the queues and, you know, it's just that self-reinforcing wheel, right? And it keeps going up and they're outperforming. And so we just keep feeding it, feeding it, feeding it. And, you know, that's how you get in this, you know, that's how you get in this crazy situation we're in. So, you know, it feels to me like that tide is turning. Um, it should be, you know, when you look at valuation, I mean, all the different stuff that we've talked about and macro and all these different things. Um, but, you know, I don't know, and I'll throw it back to both of you guys on this. Um, I will tell you the, the risk management side for us, we're pretty good at that. You know, I, we're usually very good at limiting volatility and holding in there. So I'm not as worried about that. Um, I still think that at least in my position, I think that money managers are the most afraid of not buying the dip in queues again. And and I get it. I that's my fear. You know, I mean it's just been free money, right? You think about all the research time that guys like us have spent in wasted. Over, oh <laughs> my gosh, right? Like just like I said, even when we've been right, like a company like Packard, they double their dividend and increase revenue by 50% and the stock doesn't go anywhere, right? Where you know, all you got to do is come out and say you're getting into AI and your stock will double. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's crazy times. So anyway, this too shall pass. I, I think it is. I think, I think we're getting there. Um, but these things always take longer. And I go back to 08 too. And I remember that. Yeah. Um, they, they take longer and then they happen faster. Yeah. It sure seems like that. Doesn't it? Like, you just have this period of denial and then all of a sudden the dam breaks. Right. And the other crazy thing, and we don't need to go down a macro path because I really don't even think this is a macro discussion. I, I just think people are being very Pollyannish about the impacts of having 0% interest rates for 15 years, amassing the greatest pile of debt in the lowest rates in human history, and then jacking rates to the roof and not accept expecting things to break, Right? they have to like, I mean, yeah. I don't. I don't think you need higher rates. I just think you need more time at these rates. So, five percent's not a super. You know, traditionally, it's like it's not even quite the average. The average is around six, I think. But clearly, we've come. That, that doesn't. That doesn't mean that the impact's not going to be material because people are planning on the basis of very, very low interest rates. And when rates go up like this, that obviously that must change the plans materially. How does that? You know, if you've got, you know, there's a. There's, you, you can put your money on deposit. I think my money on deposits, just my rate's gone down to 4.4%, but I'm, I think you can find better better rates out there. Um, you know, I think that 
Alpha Architect Box, which is a really interesting ETF, has a sort of they give you the Fed, they give you something like the Fed market rate using a box. Yeah, it's it's a little complicated, and I I don't fully understand how they actually execute this thing. But they give you um, basically cash rates, and they're close to like five point six seven with uh, the, uh, the running an ETF. So there's no there's no flow through that's that's sort of contained inside the the price. So you th- that's returns just the real. Yeah, tax advantage, tax advantage, and there's no there's no income flow either. So it's all capital gains. They're transmuted into capital gains. So, which is ideal if you you know you you, you have the tax impact at the time you sell it. Yeah, but that, that's a, like that's five point six seven. You start looking around at equities that give you more than that you like reliably think will give you more than five point six seven or enough to justify the the risk. Yeah, the, the just the, the risk of being in those equities. Like, there's not a lot that gets over that hurdle at the moment in my in my world anyway i I don't know what everybody else is looking at like what what do you guys think about that is that is that is it time to just jump into cash and and ride out the ride out the volatility um so it's funny you ask that question because an ongoing debate that we have had all year long and the only reason we haven't done it is because of the value that we see in some of the stuff that we're holding because of the dividends it's paying, because of the cash flow it's paying. But we have been very, very tempted to put anywhere from 50 to 65% of the value portfolio into your treasuries. And I think the earnings, what is the earnings yield on the S&P right now? I mean, if you're trading at 25, 24 times earnings, yeah, you got three or four. Yeah, three or 4%. Right. So if I'm going to get 5.2 to 5.5 holding two year treasuries in this environment, here's, here's another tell, right? For a value discussion. You can make that five to two, five point six, like you were talking about, uh, owning treasury type funds, short term, you know, treasury rates, all that kind of stuff. HYG is paying five point seven. Yeah, where's the spread right now? Holy smokes! Uh, I mean, you want to talk about want to talk about return free risk? What? Why are you buying high yield? It has been softening. Better. It has been softening through the year a little bit, but then so is TLT. TLT is the ten oh. year. Getting yeah. absolutely smoked today. So I saw some. The say, twenty year actually. It's the twenty year. Yeah, twenty plus. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. The, the, that's getting. Yeah, that's getting. I think it's I think down fifty percent. Yeah, right? something crazy. I think that. I think. I think the number is down. I don't quote me, but I. I think I looked at it this morning. I think it's fifty three percent from January one of last year. Wow. How many interest payments, how many years of interest payments did you get back in in price loss there? Oh man. I mean, you look at go look at PIMCO total return funds for the last 15, 14 years. I mean, I think last time we looked, I think it's like 1.6 total return. I mean, it's brutal. And to watch high yield that and that gets back to what we were saying. I just don't. These things have to. I mean, what's, what's the reason for HYG not kind of getting whacked oh, no. so far? What, what, why is it? Why is it yielding what it is? Well, I, I think people. It's, it's got a little I, bit of an equity kind of gamble in it. It's got people who think that it's. If you, what, what do you think? What do you think? I, I, I'm speculating 100. I, I honestly, there really is no explanation for it other than people just being blind to risk. And like I said, I think that's one of the riskiest things here is just it's been good for so long. There's been no real, you know, there's there's been no real pain that's lasted for any extended period of time. And I think people just get blind to risk. The other thing we are looking at is that you've got 
as of a week and a half ago, perhaps it's changed. It doesn't seem like it has. You got retail investors, the most bullishly positioned they've ever been on record. And, and, and I think that that's that possible. What? Yeah, no. And guys, when is you that s- a backwards looking, is that a backwards looking measure to like, to what? I, I, I don't, you know what? I didn't. What get- are they in? I mean, it's, it's, um, yeah. And, and you'll hear people support it and they'll go, well, the duration on HYG is pretty small. And you're like, are, are you familiar with the historical default rate and default rate and junk debt, you know, going into a cycle, like you don't need to, it's just, it's magical thinking. And I just think risk has been gone for too long. I mean, you know, it's, it's just crazy. There is no logical answer to why HYG is holding in there. There just isn't. It just flows. You know, I mean, it's not, it's not price sensitive. It makes no sense. Why, why would you buy junk debt paying 5.7 when you can get, you know, 30 day treasury funds paying five, 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 six, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, maybe it's an equity type thesis that it bounces back. It's a, it's a dip that you can buy. I don't know. It's I don't know. I'm speculating purely. Yeah. I mean, just to watch the way treasuries have been pounded in relationship to the way HYG is holding in there. And I just think we've been talking about it for so long. And I don't want to beat a dead horse here because if we're going to talk passive, guy like Mike Green would be a lot better off talking about it than I than I am. But um, I just think that passive has run amok and it's just turned a lot of things upside down. And you know, the funny thing is, is, and I, you know, we all know this, but I kind of see it, you know, I kind of see rates going up as sort of like the parents coming home from vacation. Yeah. <laughs> and there was a, a big party that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Went on a bender. Yeah. Because one thing I've been really impressed and I've learned a lot about over the last, this cycle is that, you know, when you've got free money and you've got interest rates is zero and you've got central banks actively trying to, you know, keeping a very, it's not just that we've got rates at zero, but making sure liquidity is ample all the time. There's kind of, there's kind of no gravity, right? There's no limit. Yeah. Like time is on your side as an investor, right? Like you might be going through a rough spot, but if rates are at zero, thing for the most part, time's on your side, things get better with time. You throw rates back on at a meaningful level. And now the cost is growing on a daily basis, right? The, 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 the clock is ticking. And I just don't think people have adjusted to that. How's There's that a- uh, hundred year Austrian bond holding up? <laughs> wasn't it the Argent? Wasn't it Argentine? I think it was Argentinian. I think there's a few. There's, there's a, a couple. Few. Yeah. Did the I don't know why the U.S. wasn't out there pumping them up? Oh, what a what a missed opportunity! No. Kidding. And now the U.S. has got this like huge wall of uh, debt that's debt got cliff, to roll. Yeah. And so is the so, so of corporates next year. It's all going to happen at the same time. So that's what we've been talking about too. And and I think this is a perfect indicator of the leg effect, right? Like you've been basically bailed out this year just by the way the ball bounced, right? So you had an unusual amount of corporate refinances this year. You go back into next year, there's a ton of them. The same is true on the commercial real estate side, which I kind of think that the issues in commercial real estate are overstated. I don't think that they're overstated as it relates to office space. Mm. Um, But I think a lot of commercial real estate is going to be fine. Um, But you look at all this, all of these things, you know, that's what always scares me, man, is when you see not one thing, because usually the market can deal with one thing. 
But when you see these convergence of these things coming together, you know, student loan repayments getting kicked back on, uh, the commercial or, or commercial real estate and corporate debt refinancings next year, um, you know, all of this stuff, you know, you're seeing signs of consumer spending starting to roll over, all of these things coming together at one time. And this is one of the reasons we were pounding on the desk, you know, a year and a half ago telling the Fed that, look, you know, quit focusing so much just on rates, suck liquidity out of this market, right? It's that's what's been a, I mean, rates certainly play a role, but it's the constant liquidity injections over the last 15 years that I think have had a, even a bigger role. I mean, together, it's been a pretty powerful con- cocktail, but. Um, well, I agree. I, I wondered if the little AI rally that it, it got called an AI rally, but I wondered if that was the, the consequences of the SVB bailout. Well, Fed's balance sheet is was was starting to get lowered a little bit and then went back up, but not quite all the way to all time highs. Halfway back, yeah. And then now it's it's been drifting back down again. A now, little now they're bit. back below, but the, the, now they're back below. I think back they're back below where they were before they before SVB happened. But there's also a little bit of a lag, right? So SVB went just. Was that October last year? Was it January? A, I think it's January. Okay. Yeah, and then then it hit the fan. It was March tenth. Okay. Think, okay. Okay. So that's much more recent. The the reason I know that it, it and again I, it's not 0809. I just think it's really fascinating the way it played out. Lehman or or excuse me, Bear Stearns. No, was it? Yeah, Bear Stearns fell failed on March sixteenth of mm-hmm. 08. Right, this and then you close. saw that rally. Right, you saw that rally, and oh, we're through the worst of it. Just and then October came. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, September. Funny story, actually, Jake. My first day, the I worked at Russell Investments before that, but took a job in the financial crisis right before it really got acute as an advisor because I was 26 years old. And if you're looking for a finance job, if you didn't have a PhD or something like that, which I don't, obviously. Uh, but if you were looking for a job in finance back then, the only job you'd get was an advisor. So I took an advisor job and my first day on the job was a day limit folded. <laughs> September 15th, 2008. It Welcome was, to the jungle. Yeah. Oh my God, man. The guys in the office are looking at me like I'm Jonah. You know, like they got to throw me over. Oh, yeah, you're yeah. Jonah. Sacrifice yeah. you. Yeah, exactly. Let the big fish eat him, man. He's bad luck. We got to uh, we got to do Jake's, uh, Jake's veggies. Jake's got this... Uh, he he renders some scientific or Rendered. philosophical learnings unto us and it makes benefit glorious nation of value after us. And he's got an unbroken streak, so he can't break his streak. All right. This is uh yeah, this is gonna be like a barely, you know, get you over kind of fastball. But uh so I was I happened to come across this little article that was from the Kaufman Foundation and Inc. magazine. And and it's actually from 2016 of all things, but it, it looked at the 5,000 fastest growing companies that, that Inc. had identified, you know, they do these surveys and, um, but this then went and looked backwards at like, how did these companies do then over the next, you know, three years, I think it was. And it turned out that two thirds of the companies that they had surveyed had either shrunk in size, gone out of business or been disadvantageously sold. So, you know, you have this like, oh, here's the all-star list of these, you know, top 5,000 fastest growing companies. And they all, two thirds of them were worse off than they were when they were identified, right? Is it just self-reported? How do they know that you're fastest growing? I don't know, Toby. Don't, let's not get too- Coming off a low base. How'd you go last year? Yeah, right. Well, in in fairness, a lot of them are off of a very low base, right? Like these are, a lot of them are, you know, early companies. But so 
uh, Inc. then identified these like four stages of growth. And they're so stage one is like the startup finds a real customer for their idea. And I think maybe you would call that like product market fit. Stage two is that they establish processes to deliver their product and find new customers. And so that's sort of like, you know, the scaling part of it once you find product market fit. Uh, stage three is the enterprise must create more processes, no longer depending upon a special talent of one person, let's say. So it's a little bit more institutionalizing the business. And then stage four is creating processes for developing entirely new products for new customers and having a system for that. So it's not just sort of, you know, like one man's genius, maybe. Uh, and many of them get stuck between like stage three and four. And it requires the kind of this continual reinvention of the company. And uh, I've read before, and I kind of like this this idea that if the pace of change inside of your company is slower than the pace of change outside of your company, then you're in serious trouble. Um, and so I think that's that's what ends up happening to a lot of these companies is that they they kind of get bogged down in one of these stages, and then the world changes around them, and they're in trouble. Um, and long term survival then requires leaders who can craft a, a culture that rewards both those who bring efficiencies, but also those who who can innovate. Um, and so. On top of that, then we had uh, Michael Mobison released a white paper here, I think last week or recently, and he's talking actually about uh, the five stages of, of the life cycle of a company. So I thought it might be interesting to tie that in with, with Michael's work as well. And he has then his five stages, introduction, growth, maturity, shakeout, and decline. And uh, he references then this accounting researcher's work, uh, this woman named Victoria Dick Dickinson, and she places companies into these different stages based on basically their cash flow statements. So, you know, the operating cash flow, if it, is it plus or minus, the the investing plus or minus, and then the financing plus or minus. And you can kind of like actually map out each company depending on the, where their stage is based on, you know, is it flowing in or out from operations, from financing, and from investing? And, you know, kind of maps as you would expect, like, you know, early in introduction company, a lot of outflows in operating as they're getting spun up, right? They're finding their product. Um, the growth companies, they actually start to see some inflows. Obviously, maturity, you see inflows in the operating. Shakeout can kind of go either way. And then declining, you you start to get negative outflows in the operating uh, part of the cash flow statement. And of course, you know, you should always, whenever Mal Boson's talking about cash flow statements, you, you should be making these adjustments on stock-based comp and... Um, couple other accounting things that he references. Uh, and then on the investing part of it, um, we can skip through that. That's, you know, it's, it's kind of what you would expect. You can read the white paper. But what then is interesting is you look at the uh, the ROIC of the companies at these different stages. And, uh, you know, as you'd kind of expect, the early introduction part of the business has a negative return on invested capital as it's growing. Uh, growth is actually lower than maturity, and then shakeout is a little bit lower than that. And then of course, decline, you're back into the negative again. Uh, but now this is the where it really starts to get interesting is then he looked at the three-year annualized total shareholder return based on the like where that company was at the beginning of that, of that you know, measurement period. So like, we'll put you into a bucket and then we'll measure three years. Like, how did you do as an investor in this company? And so companies in the this is annualized TSR for the next three years. And the introduction side, you're at about negative 10%. Uh, so this probably speaks to the power law nature of VC and the average being not very good. Uh, but if you can kind of get into that upper decile, you, you probably do better. And it probably drags up the total. Um, 
the growth side of thing, which this is where you should really be paying attention because this is interesting for everyone who's kind of betting on AI and growth and all of this TSR on that is like 2%. Um, so if you're early in a company that's growing a bunch and really is sort of, I feel like emblematic of what probably 2021 most represented, that was a very, that, that doesn't match the rest of the data uh, historically. Uh, and then maturity is the best one. Uh, and you're upwards of like nine or 10% then in TSR. Uh, shakeout is, comes in around like 6%. And then decline actually comes in at a, at a slightly positive, call it like 1%. Um, so I, you know, this kind of, uh, to me, tells you to like perhaps focus on companies that are a little bit more mature than what I think kind of the average market participant is looking for these days. And everyone's sort of been chasing growth, but that's historically has not really been the way to bet. Um, but yeah, that's it. That's a little bit of kind of not the best veggie segment I've ever done, but just a couple little interesting tidbits that's that I came one. across last week and threw it out there. Buffett's just swimming along behind there along the, uh, the growth as it turns into mature, just picking them up there. Yeah. Well, and it all of those numbers make perfect sense, and I feel like I feel like that you may not think that that's the best veggie segment, but I feel like that's going to be one particularly that's going to be studied a lot in hindsight. Meaning, you know, I think that investors have forgotten at some point that revenue growth is not what pays you, right? It's profitability, and if you're not worried about profitability, revenue growth becomes a lot easier, right? And if yeah. you've got a VC environment that's pumping cash into your system, 0% rates, all that kind of, I mean, look how many of these companies that we've already seen mature and none of them have hit their target with what people were expecting out of earnings on it, right? Yeah. Where are these margins? Where's the economies of scale? Well, yeah. So Blue Apron got sold last week or it's it's caught a bid and it's, it's uh, it listed at a $2 billion market cap and it got sold at $100 million. Yeah. And how much total capital do you think went into that company over its lifetime to end with a $100 million exit for some of those people? I'm, ge- I'm guessing it's ch- it's chewed up money at that point. I'm guessing it's down cash and cash. I, I would be, well. man, I would be, if it got up to a $2 billion market cap, I would be shocked. And I mean, don't quote me because I could be off, but I, I would be shocked if less than 250 to 350 million had gone into that thing. Oh, I bet yeah. it's over a billion. I would think so too, but I just don't know. Yeah, I'm surprised. Get on that, please. Tell us what's the answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> somebody out there that knows. They had two uh, share recombinations, whatever you call that. Not not a share split. What's the opposite of a share split? Uh, a, a, a share merger, reverse, reverse split. split, reverse no, split. split. There yeah. we go, reverse split. They had two reverse splits. So when you look at the share price, it's, it, it doesn't quite. If you look at the listing price and the sale price, it doesn't quite do justice to to the true carnage that happened on the way through. And they were big reverse splits; they were like fifteen for one. That kind of that kind of number, just to stay listed, probably sometimes. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. And he, this gets back to what we were talking about earlier too about it not just being. You know, when I look at this market, I don't. I I, I see things that remind me of two thousand, but not everything, right? Like it. You know, for instance, if you look at a company like Google and go compare it to Netflix, right? It, the same basic buyers, right? Though they, 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 those are both crowd favorites, um, more so Netflix. But put those things side by side and tell me if you would pay almost double 
for Netflix, what you're paying for Google. It just doesn't make any sense, mm-hmm. right? Like who, no, if you were looking at the cash flow statements and balance sheets and all that kind of stuff, nobody would pay that premium for Netflix. They, this is what I was saying is it's not, I don't think it's as simple as saying that everything's so overpriced. G- generally speaking, I think things are, but there's also just these discrepancies that just don't, that don't wash, you know, and, and maybe you're right. Maybe Netflix is going to be the better investment over the next 10 years, you know, cause we never know how these things play out. But I, if you understand basic accounting, no one's buying Netflix at this price when you've got a Google, right? That's the thing that's, I don't know, that's interesting or to me is unique about this market because as much stuff out there is snake poison that I wouldn't touch with my worst enemy's cash. On the flip side, there are great opportunities. At least that's what they appear, you know, for, for longer term investors. Cumulative retained earnings and What's- share sales on Blue Apron, $1.6 billion. Oof. I don't think there are many retained earnings there, but I could be wrong. I thought it was loss making the whole way through, but 1.6 billion. That's big. That's a big number. That's a, yeah. that's a lot well, of money. Well, it might be a up. negative 1.6 billion of retained earnings, which would kind of give you the total. And share sales, negative 1.6 billion, that is. Yeah. It, Ouch. You know what's been wild to watch about this, though, especially the last two years? I, I, and I want to hear what you guys have to say about it. What's been wild to watch is to watch. There's so many of these companies where you're like, I know where that thing's going, right? But having seen the amount of money people made on those, right? Watching yeah. how high they went, yeah. I mean, holy smokes. I, you know, and you knew you, you, you know, you see that rocket go up, you know it's coming back down at some point. But I'm not gonna lie to you. Uh I I really underestimated how crazy it could get. Oh, it was, no. it was unbelievable. I, I said it about Beyond. When Beyond had run up a bit, I put out a tweet about Beyond just saying, you've lost your mind at this price. And just the the the, the hate mail that I got underneath that one. Is that right? And then, yeah, Beyond. And that was like, I thought Beyond was one of the more, Peloton too. Oh, yeah. Like Peloton was just that combination of everybody being locked at home and not being able to exercise and it being like red hot and right into it. It's just, I've never seen anything like that. Given you know the history of anybody who's spent any feature of exercise equipment is that it folds up and goes under your bed for when you never ever use it again. I, so it I thought it like... was like how many how many clothes can you store on top <laughs> of it, it. As, a, as a rack? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah. an inner, this is our net connected interactive clothes hanger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and you saw this, and I've heard you guys have a lot of conversations about this one, especially when it went down. And this is an extreme example, but it really is a good microcosm. Um, we had GameStop on our screens going back to 2015. And it's like the cheapest. I mean, it was the cheapest thing in my screen for a long time. Oh, yeah. And just sitting there going, look, this thing's probably dead. Catalyst, yeah. you know, melting ice cube. Yeah. Off-sheet, off-sheet liabilities in the leases too. That was always a little bit nerve-wracking. Yeah. yeah sorry, oh, dude, keep yeah. going. Yeah. I mean, it, it. no, man, it was a dog with fleas to say the least, right? But when it got crushed, um, we took a position out at about $9.50, I want to say. We had a very tight stop on it. I I did not, I'm not going to come back here and say, I I just knew- Wrote it to 300. Oh, (laughs) no. So this is a, yeah, this is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. So we we got in when Cohen took a spot on the board because I was, at that point, they had 120% shot short interest. You looked how cheap it was and I was like, hey, there's a really good chance you could get a short run. And we thought the short run could take it at 35 or 40 bucks. That was our outlook. 
So we bought it between nine and 10, somewhere in there. And we wrote it up. I, I went to dump it at 38. By the time the trade went through, it executed at 43, right? That's how fast it was moving. Yeah. I, I walk out of the office that day with my chest sticking out going. Feeling great. And then there's oh, yeah. <laughs> then 10X. It, 10X is in the next seven trading days. And oh. people are like, why didn't you hold it? And we're like, because we knew it. Right? <laughs> we we knew it was a joke at 35 or 40 you know um and this stuff and everybody always tells you that and man it taught me a lesson i i feel like at the net at the peak of the next cycle i tr- i've written it down but i need to find a young guy right oh, yeah, yeah. This Who, is the, what was that drunken, drunken miller yeah yeah Be- because you you you'd never but should I have sold the whole position there? No, I probably should have let 100 to 150 basis points ride and stop loss it. But you're looking at it and going, this is just insane. I know what this thing's worth, right? It's not worth anywhere that near that. And then it 10 X's. But having said that, we're going to go through a regime now. It'll be like the early 2000s where you buy something and it runs up a little bit. And if you don't sell it, it runs back down again. You know, that, that's what the value, that's what I remember value being like through whatever it was, 2002 to 2007, you buy something cheaply, but it's not that great. And so when it hits value, if you haven't kind of Turned moved it, on yeah. from it, it just goes back to where you, where you bought it from. Like they just do that. They do that loop-de-loop for years and years and years without sort of going anywhere. And yeah. then, you'll, then you'll be like, you, you'll, be, you'll be never so in that environment. You're like, where have all my returns gone? Yeah. Yeah, because... Go ahead. I, I, well, I was gonna say I try to take a little bit of a, a stoic approach to this, and that there's there's a certain amount of the return that I deserve for the work that I've done, and then there's other parts of the return that I don't deserve because it doesn't fit with how I want to do things. And yeah. if someone else gets that portion of the return profile, then good for them. But that that wasn't mine. I'm gonna get my safe version that I want to get, and they can have that part. Yeah, yeah, and that that's. That's very similar to the philosophy that we've deployed. You know, I, I wouldn't change the way that we did it, you know, or the way that we managed and we haven't um, because you're right. Like you have to accept the irrational part of this job, you know, and it, it just, it's going to happen at times, but man, I, I, I mean, just real much that that's still fun to watch. And yeah. oh, and it's hard to miss out on. You know, when you're watching everybody, it's, it, it reminds me that I forget what his name was. You guys, I'm sure you guys know it. The, the guy on CNBC that comes out and he's talking about this stock. And then they ask him what the company does. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was Mark Mid- Midovini or something yeah. like yeah. that. <laughs> Sorry, he you're, just, you're, you're he breaking said, up. He should have yeah. just said, that's not what I do. I don't I don't know them that deeply. I'm a, I'm a, like a, I look at the trends. I look at the, yeah, I don't care what they do. Something. Yeah. Which yeah. is probably true. That's probably what he does. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, you get into those environments. It's and, stressful uh, being on TV. I, I get it. You, you, you just, you say silly things. Your brain just shuts down. <laughs> it does. Yeah, you, you get that full on fugue. Yeah. Uh, I, I know, but you never forgot what a company did. Right. I, I just didn't know in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause that's you getting along without understanding a company. That's your MO. I, I, I have a slightly different perspective to Jake's that Jake, Jake, gets the return that he thinks he deserves. I just think whatever you do is going to be the wrong thing. If you sell it, it's going to run. If you hold on to it, it's going to, it's going to fall back down. So just, just do what you think you should do and then just never look at it again or don't look at it for until it comes back into the screen and you get to buy it long again. Yeah, man, the Costanza portfolio. 
I, I still, I still, I don't, I, I don't cuss stand to myself. I still try to do what I think I should be doing. It's just that I know that at every single point, whatever I do will be the wrong thing because I have done it. You know, it's like that, it's like that Schrodinger's yeah. whatever you do is just the wrong thing. So don't worry about it. Just do it and expect it to be the wrong thing. Yeah. Move on. The, the man in the machine that's constantly taking the counter side of every trade, right? That would be smart. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, yeah. I, again, I've just learned that lesson though, that um, I think there it's really, you know, you know, what's really hard for me is finding that line of being, especially managing other people's money as a fiduciary, finding that proper line of doing the right thing, managing risk properly, but also taking enough that, that balance to me is very, very difficult. Um, especially in this environment. You know what I mean? I, mm-hmm. I would love to hear how you guys balance that because um, that's something that we constantly wrestle with, right? Where, where are we being too conservative? And, you know, that, that I, I battle with that. I feel like it's like talking about position sizing, you know, like, I don't feel like there is a right you answer. You size up the ones that don't work and you size down the ones that do. You, you never buy enough of the ones that do work. <laughs> yeah. I, I, my my similar lament is that there are, you want to be in the market generally, right? Like there's just, there's a lot of good, you know, owning American, especially in the last century, but uh, owning global businesses has been a good way to build wealth for a long period of time. And you don't want to, and the timing of these things is incredibly difficult. I don't think it's, it's, it's hard to time markets. It's hard to time factors. However, there are opportunities that occasionally are thrown up that are just so blindingly obvious. And you want to have some dry powder, some like you know, part of your capital that's available to jump on those rainy day opportunities. And you, that then means that that capital has to sit there for a long period of time. So how much of it to have in kind of base load? Like I'm just going to own a lot of businesses and I'm going to do pretty well on average as a base. And how much do I keep carved out for just the super no brainers and really being opportunistic? That balance to me is like an interesting, uh, t- is, is difficult to thread the needle on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfectly stated. Nothing to add. Yeah, no. <clears throat> uh, yeah, and I don't really have anything to add either. But I'll lament with you because that—that is—that—that is the t- that, and you know, watching that whole stuff go off in twenty and twenty-one, I understood why those stocks were going up. And we made it a few. We made a few trades here and there. We had a we had a nice twenty twenty-one. Um, but looking back on it, it it just we saw what was going on. We should have capitalized on it more. Um, Stole but, some equity. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah we, we should have been more aggressive. We should have borrowed, borrowed a billion dollars at 0%. Raised the spec. <laughs> I, probably, I probably wouldn't have gone that far, right? No zero uh, days to option expiry in the, in the client's portfolio. But yeah, just, just, just knowing when, um, yeah, just it, it feels reckless at times, but knowing when insanity is ruling the day and getting on and riding it. And then, you know, because it's because you and I, you guys all, it, it, as long as I'm really managing my risk and really defining my exposure and things like that, one of the things we tell our clients is it really, you can own anything in a portfolio. The question is, how much do you own? Right. Um, it's the sizing that kills you. You know, it, it doesn't mean everything should belong in a portfolio, but you guys get my drift. But just, it's yeah. uh that we're running up on we're banging up on time here. Zach, oh, yeah, if folks want to get in contact with you, what's the best way to get in contact with you and follow along? 
Yeah, bet, best way to do is follow me on Twitter at KYR Radio uh, or Know Your Risk Radio. Yeah, yeah, Know Your Risk Radio, and then just new, Google Know Your Risk Radio podcast. We we need to have Jake on. I haven't had him on before, but we have guys. We've had Toby on several times and do our own little once a week show, and uh, hopefully we bring some value. Seem to folks seem to like it. So you know, as long as they're not booing us off stage, we'll keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Jake. To Zach Abraham, Bulwark Capital Management. Was, uh, thank you very much.